If you're a Christian, you've been born of God. And listen carefully, your victory over the world is not merely possible, it is absolutely certain. That's what John is saying. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue Tom's series in 1 John 5, The Nature of Saving Faith. In the first century, John the Apostle wrote that all Christians overcome the world. And he uses precise language to demonstrate that all who have turned from their transgressions and have trusted in Christ alone for salvation have been set free from the shackles of sin and the family of Satan to be born into the family of God where righteousness dwells. So be encouraged, believer. If you have true saving faith, you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been made alive in Jesus Christ and you'll stand with every other believer in victory over the world and its deadly influences. It's not merely possible, it is absolutely certain. Let's join Tom now for more here on The Word Unleashed. Well, I encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. I love history. I read in in various periods of history. I love World War II, but history as a whole. It's interesting when you examine the great conquerors of human history, one name stands alone. If you're a student of history, you know that. That name is Alexander the Great. Let me just give you a a summary of the conquests of his, his rule. This is one summary. Listen carefully. Quote, his father Philip was assassinated in 336 BC, and Alexander inherited a powerful yet volatile kingdom. He quickly dealt with his enemies at home and reasserted Macedonian power within Greece. He then set out to conquer the massive Persian Empire. Against overwhelming odds, he led his army to victories across the Persian territories of Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt, without suffering a single defeat. He became the great king of Persia at the age of 25. Over the next eight years, in his capacity as king, commander, politician, scholar, and explorer, Alexander led his army a further 11,000 miles, founding over 70 cities, and creating an empire that stretched across three continents and covered around two million square miles. The entire area from Greece in the west, north to the Danube, south into Egypt, and as far east as India was linked together in a vast international network of trade and commerce. This was united by a common Greek language and culture, end quote. Truly amazing in that small span of time, Alexander conquered the entire Mediterranean world. As I think about that conquest, I'm reminded that at a spiritual level, we have even a greater conquest that is ours. 
In fact, if you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Scripture promises that we also have experienced victory over the world. Not a military victory, but a spiritual victory accomplished through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the next passage we come to in 1 John. We're studying 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, and for the third and last time, the test of faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5, you follow along as I read. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Of God. Now, the theme of this entire paragraph that begins in verse 1 and runs all the way down through verse 13 is that the one who believes God's testimony about the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel has in fact been born of God and has eternal life. In this paragraph, John explains four key elements of saving faith. Four key elements. The first element we've already discovered together is the cause of saving faith. Just in the first part of verse 1, the cause of saving faith. Look at it with me. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ literally has been born out of God. Our faith is not the cause of the new birth, but rather the consequence of it. God first made us alive, and then at that same moment in time, we responded in faith to the gospel. If you weren't here when we studied that passage together, I encourage you to go back and listen because that is absolutely foundational to understanding God's sovereignty and salvation. Now, last time, we began to consider a second key element of faith. From the middle of verse 1 down through verse 5, we discovered the results of saving faith the results of saving faith. John here identifies several guaranteed results that are always found in the life of a person who has true saving faith. These are the three results we discovered last time. First of all, if you have true saving faith, you will have a love for God. Secondly, if if you have true saving faith, you will have a love for other believers. And then thirdly, we discovered that if you have true saving faith, then you will have a life that is characterized by a pattern of obedience to God's Word. If you're a true believer, if you've really believed in the true biblical Jesus, the true biblical gospel, experienced the new birth, then those things are true of you. Be encouraged. On the other hand, if you say, I'm a Christian, I believed in Christ, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I signed a card, whatever it was you did, but you do not recognize those things in your life, and you have to honestly say, they're not in my life, then please understand, you have not exercised saving faith, you have a dead, damning faith. It's not true 
faith in Jesus Christ. Today we come to a fourth result of true saving faith, and that is victory over the world. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Look at them with me again. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, first of all, you'll notice that these verses are connected to what comes before with that little word, for. By the way, the important words in Scripture are often not the large words, but the little words, where the meaning turns, for. That means that verse 4 explains the reason for something that John has just said. Now, there are two possibilities. It's possible that verse 4 is the reason for obedience to God's Word that's mentioned in verse 3. A second possibility is that verse 4 is the reason for all three results that are mentioned in verses 1 through 3. We can't be dogmatic, but I lean toward the second. I think he's looking back at all three of those results. And verses 4 and 5 give the reason that those are true. We love God. We love believers. We obey God's word. Why? Why is that a reality? Because as believers, our faith has overcome the world. So in one sense, verses 4 and 5 are sort of the, the outflow of the first three and an explanation of them. They give us the reason. But verses 4 and 5 also provide another result of saving faith, and that is victory over the world. Now this theme, victory over the world, John develops in several ways. Let's, let's just walk our way through this and consider it together. The first insight that we get about this victory is the certainty of our victory. The certainty of our victory. Look at how verse 4 begins. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The New American Standard Translation captures John's unexpected expression here very well. What we expect John to say is the one who is born of God overcomes the world. But he doesn't. He says, whatever is born of God. Now, obviously, he's still talking about believers, since only believers are born of God. But he doesn't say he or she or who. Instead, he states the truth in this impersonal way to emphasize its absolute certainty. As one author puts it, it's not the man or woman, but his birth from God which conquers So look at verse 4 again. Literally, it says this, whatever has been born out of God, whatever, that is without exception, has experienced the new birth, is overcoming the world. I think he uses the present tense here, and many commentators agree, to, to make this a sort of timeless statement of fact. This is always true. Whatever is born of God, has been born of God, is always overcoming the world. It's always true. So listen carefully. Whatever it is John means by overcomes the world, and we'll look at that in a moment, it always is a certain reality wherever there's the new birth. That's what he's saying. 
John Stott says the new birth is a supernatural event which takes us out of the sphere of the world where Satan rules into the family of God. The spell of the old life has been broken. The fascination of the world has lost its appeal, end quote. If you're a Christian, you've been born of God, and listen carefully, your victory over the world is not merely possible, it is absolutely certain. That's what John is saying. So that, of course, brings us to the second question, what in the world is this that is absolutely certain in our life? So let's look then at the explanation of our victory. The explanation of our victory. What does he mean? Well, first of all, before we look at this verse specifically, we need to recognize that John's already used this expression or a similar expression twice before in his letter. Already in this letter, we've discovered, first of all, the maturing Christian, the growing Christian overcomes Satan through knowing and believing God's Word. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 13. He's talking about spiritual young people, young men. That is, those who are not only in Christ, but are growing and growing strong and developing, maturing He says in the middle of verse 13, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome, there's our word, the evil one, meaning Satan. How in the world do maturing Christians overcome Satan? Look at the middle of verse 14. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God remains in you and you have overcome the evil one. As we mature in Christ, as we mature in our understanding and knowledge of His Word, the truth about Him, the truth about ourselves, the truth about everything, we overcome Satan. Why? Because we believe God's truth and not Satan's lies. We increasingly understand what is true and what is error. But he uses this word a second time. Not only does the maturing Christian overcome Satan through knowing and believing God's Word, but All true believers overcome damning false teaching. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not really of us. In other words, he's talking about the false teachers and their followers who had left the faithful churches and gone and started their own thing. He said, you didn't go with them. You didn't buy into that. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it'd be shown that they are not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. And as this passage unfolds, we learn that that overcomes This anointing, that is the Holy Spirit that gives us an understanding of the truth, doesn't keep us from slipping into some error that would sort of thwart our Christian growth in life. That happens to believers, unfortunately. But what will never happen is a true Christian will never believe damning error. He'll never reject the key elements of the gospel by which he's saved. He will overcome false teaching and error by his faith. But back to our text in chapter 5, we learn here that everyone who has 
experience the new birth, notice what he says in verse 4. Everyone who's been born again, who's been born of God, overcomes the world. What is that? Well, let's take it apart. Let's start by defining the world. What does he mean by the world? The Greek word is cosmos. It occurs some 180 times in the New Testament. Its basic meaning is an order or an arrangement. It's an ordered system as opposed to chaos. Cosmos, like the English word world, has several different senses in the New Testament. In other words, it's used in slightly different ways. It retains that basic idea of order, but it's used in these ways. It's used of the universe as a whole. It's used of all intelligent life, both men and angels. It's used of the earth, the planet we live on. It's used of mankind as a whole, all of humanity. It's used of fallen mankind, unredeemed mankind, specifically. And finally, the word cosmos is used of an organized system of evil created and ruled by Satan that dominates fallen humanity, is alienated from God, and hostile to God. It's that last sense that John uses most frequently in his gospel, in 1 John, and in our text. This is the sense of the world that he means. Here's how another author, Burdick, a good commentator on this letter, defines world. Listen to this. The world is all that goes into making up the organized system of evil on this earth. It includes such elements as all unregenerate men, their thoughts, attitudes, purposes, and desires, I might add, and values, all influences and forces that are opposed to God, and the patterns of evil practice that characterize life apart from God. You say, boy, that sounds pretty all-inclusive. It is. In fact, John Calvin put it this way. He said, whatever is opposed to the spiritual kingdom of Christ is the world. Everything that's opposed to the spiritual kingdom of Christ is the world. The world, in this sense, is under Satan's control, Scripture tells us. He's the God of this world. The evil world system that appears to be chaotic, defined by confusion and and conflict. In fact, there is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of one. It's Satan. He's the mastermind behind it. And the apparent chaos is in reality cosmos, an ordered attack on God and his kingdom. The world in this sense hates Christ, we're told in John's gospel. It hates his followers, we're also told in John's gospel. It is supported by satanically inspired philosophy, religion, and all kinds of pragmatic ideas and viewpoints. In chapter 2, verse 16, John refers to the things that are in the world and its lusts. And he goes on to explain those things. Chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, one, the lust of the flesh, two, the lust of the eyes, and three, the boastful pride of life. Self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and self-promotion, all of that is wrapped up in the system that Satan has created. So by the world then, in our text, 
John means the organized evil system created and ruled by Satan that dominates fallen humanity, is alienated from, and hostile to God. When it comes to the world in that sense, John says that whatever has been born of God, look again at verse 4, overcomes the world. The verb means to vanquish, to absolutely rout, to conquer. In fact, the opposite of this word overcomes means to be conquered, to be beaten. Believers are not conquered, they are not beaten by the world, but they overcome or vanquish the world. How? In what specific ways do we now as believers, all of us, overcome the world? Well, understand it's not a military conquest. It is an intellectual, spiritual conquest. Think about the revolutionary change that happened as a result of your new birth. We once loved the world with its lust. Chapter 2, verse 15. Now we love God. We once loved lies and error. Now we love the truth. We once loved our sin. Now we love holiness. We once loved ourselves. And now we love others. We once obeyed our lusts. And now we obey God's word. That is the victory that overcomes the world. Everything, everyone, whatever has been born of God overcomes the world. That's the explanation of our victory. It's a spiritual victory that has taken us from one kingdom to another. Next, John identifies the means of our victory. The means of our victory. How is it that we accomplish this victory? Before we consider the biblical means, let me just give you a couple of, of common unbiblical means of overcoming the world. One of them is isolationism and monasticism. With the conversion of Constantine, the church suddenly became intermingled with pagan Roman culture. And some Christians tried to resist being swept into the debauchery that was rampant in the Roman world using a wrong means. They decided to just isolate themselves. That'll do it. If, if I just pull out of the world and disconnect, then That'll allow me to overcome the world. Eventually, ultimately, some went to total isolation, even in a monastic lifestyle. You have the anchorites who lived on pillars and others who lived in caves and all kinds of ways that they pull themselves out of the world, saying that's how I'll overcome the world. Some Christians still try isolation. If I can just insulate myself and isolate myself from the world, then I'll have victory over the world. A second wrong means to victory is legalism. And that is forbidding actions or behaviors that are popular in the world, but the Bible doesn't, doesn't forbid. And so they think that if they add this list of rules to themselves, some biblicals, many beyond the Scripture, then they will have victory over the world. There's a big problem there, and I still remember the first time I heard this statement. I was listening on radio in, to a radio station in Gaffney, South Carolina, and I heard a man named John MacArthur say this. This is way back in my college days, and I've never forgotten it. He says, the flesh has no power to control the flesh, and it still doesn't. 
your rules are not going to give you victory over the world. A third wrong means is asceticism. Denying the Christian's right to participate in non-sinful but pleasurable human activities. If I, if I just punish my body, then somehow that will allow me to overcome the world. Listen, none of those will produce victory over the world. Why? Because according to chapter 2, verse 16, the world is in you. So you can get out of the world all you want, but you can't get the world out of you on your own. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part five of his series, The Nature of Saving Faith. Tom will bring you part six next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Visit us online to find many helpful resources, most of which are free, including Tom's books, Sunday morning and evening sermon audio, video, and transcripts, audio, video, and sheet music from hymns that Tom and his wife Sheila have co-written, several teaching and lecture series, podcasts, and Faithful Stewards Conference information. All of that is at The Word Unleashed. Visit us today. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting us online at The Word Unleashed. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Oh,